welcome to the Weekly Skeptic episode 22. I'm Nick Dixon and I'm joined by confirmed enemy of the state, Toby Young. Coming up, Toby gets spied on, Sturgeon loses the plot and Zahawi loses his job. Plus our top stories of the week with Will and of course, peak woke. But Toby, surely we have to start with you, humble old Toby Young. Who'd have thought being spied on by the 77th Brigade? <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, I was contacted by Big Brother Watch um, about six months ago. And they said they were doing an investigation into various shadowy state agencies, such as, um, uh, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of them, um, uh, uh, like um, the uh, Rapid Response Unit in the Cabinet Office, the Counter Disinformation Unit in DCMS, um, uh, the Intelligence and Communications Unit in the Home Office, and as you say, the 77th Brigade. And they were doing an investigation into whether or not these units, which for the most part were originally established to counter disinformation generated by malign foreign actors for the purposes of interfering in you know, British election results. So they had a you know, a proper purpose initially, but there's been a great deal of mission creep. And during the pandemic, various government ministers um, took advantage of these units within their departments um, to monitor critics of the government's pandemic response, um, uh, including journalists. Well, Big Brother Watch asked me to submit a subject access request to these various different Whitehall departments to see if I was among the critics of the pandemic response that had been monitored by these agencies. And I thought that was pretty far-fetched. You know, why would they bother monitoring me? Um, uh, and um, turns out they did. And it wasn't just me. It was also Peter Hitchens, Julia Hartley Brewer, um, Carl Hennigan, Tom Jefferson, um, uh, c- quite a few dozens of um, journalists and scientists. And also, rather shockingly, I mean, the whole thing's shocking, but even more shockingly, uh, some Conservative MPs. So David Davis, for instance, but not the only one. Um, And uh, uh, Big Brother Watch has now compiled a report. It was published last night, Monday night. Um, And uh, the overall picture built up by the report is of a government which was, you know, unscrupulously leveraging the fact that we were supposedly in the midst of a public health emergency to cross various constitutional lines. I mean, in the normal course of events, you wouldn't expect the government of the day to ask the civil servants who are supposed to be politically neutral, um, working in these units designed to protect the state from malign foreign actors on social media, you wouldn't expect them to you know, use these units to monitor critics of government policy. That would be an inappropriate use of what is a national security resource and the kind of thing you'd expect to see in, you know, fried brain conspiracy movies like Enemy of the State, um, but not in good old Blighty. But turns out, you know, this is what the government did. Um, uh, Now, the overall picture painted by the report is very damning. Um, And uh, I think it does call for an investigation into exactly what the relationship was between the government and these various organisations and what these organisations did, what they got up to at the government's behest. Um, But rather frustratingly, there is no smoking gun, no big smoking gun in the report. So one of the one of the the way in which these organizations operated at least as far as we can tell from these subject access requests um, is that they uh, monitored 
everything that people like me and Carl Hennigan and Peter Hitchens were doing in the public domain. So they monitored our social media activity, our journalism, and they compiled reports. And they then submitted these reports back to officials, ministers in the departments they were based in. Um, And if we said something that in their view uh, breached the terms of service of a social media platform, or if it could be complained about to Ipso, uh, the press regulator, they would flag that up. And the departments then had the option, um, in the case of Twitter, for instance, of using their departmental um, uh, trusted flagger status to flag these breaches to Twitter um, and get the accounts banned. But unfortunately, there is no example. Uh, least nothing's turned up as a result of a subject access request. There's nothing in the Big Brother Watch report, no example of um, a government department actually using the information obtained by one of these shadowy agencies to get someone banned from a social media platform. Now, they may have been doing that, um, but we don't know for sure uh, that they were. And, you know, if we did know of an actual example of them doing that, and I'm sure they did do it because the subject access request I submitted uh, about my own name to... um, Uh, DCMS about the counter disinformation unit's activities revealed that the counter disinformation unit was indeed monitoring me and reporting back to DCMS. And in one of the reports, it said that they weren't recommending that my tweet, which was a tweet simply um, uh, pointing out that an anti-vaccine passport petition in France had got 1.2 million signatures. They weren't recommending in my case that this should be flagged to Twitter as a breach of Twitter's terms of service because there would be free speech implications. Um, and it, it th- that suggests that I was protected from being flagged to Twitter in this way by DCMS because of my role as a, well, a well-known journalist and because, probably because of my role as the founder and director of the Free Speech Union. But the implication was that if I was a less well-known journalist and hadn't set up a, a free speech organisation, then what I'd said would have been flagged to Twitter and they would have made an effort, used their trusted flagger status to get Twitter to ban me. Now, I was never banned from Twitter, I don't think, um, during during the kind of pandemic. I was banned by Facebook on numerous occasions. And it might well be the reason I was banned on Facebook is because a government department asked Facebook to ban me. It's even possible that the reason um, PayPal closed my personal account, the Free Speech Union account, and the Daily Skeptic account um, was at the behest of a government department, whether the Cabinet Office, the Home Office, DCMS, the Foreign Office, who knows. Um, but that that we have we don't know that for sure. That was not disclosed by any of these departments in response to my subject access request. But we know that in some cases they've held things back. So it's possible they were getting up to this this sort of mischief. But I think the the bigger picture is alarming enough, even in the absence of a smoking gun. I mean, I think it, the absence of a, of a of a really significantly egregious free speech breach revealed by these subject access requests means that I don't think a political scandal and a public inquiry will be triggered by Big Brother's report unfortunately, even though I think it should. Um, But I think it's significant. And the the real significance of the report is that the fact is the government were able to persuade the the personnel in these shadowy agencies, many of whom have a background in the security services. They were able to persuade them that people like me and Julia Hartley Brewer and Peter Hitchens and Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson ought to be monitored, not for political reasons, 
not because we were enemies of the Conservative Party and challenging the Conservative Party's balmy pandemic response, but because we were a danger to the state. We posed a danger to the British public. They managed to persuade them of that. That is the really alarming thing. Once you've crossed that Rubicon, then, then you know, you become, people like me become quite vulnerable. If you can persuade, you know, these agencies, were, which are kind of, you know, only once removed from the security services with overlapping personnel, I think, um, particularly the 77th Brigade, if you can persuade them that people like me are legitimate targets of these security agencies and ought to be spied upon, then, you know, even though in this instance, they may have only monitored our activity in the public domain. And even though they may not have gone as far as asking social media platforms to ban us, you know, what's to stop them doing that next time? Um, uh, you know, under a, maybe one of the things which which constrained uh, ministers, maybe the reason, you know, the digital secretary or Matt Hancock or Michael Gove, who was head of the cabinet office during this period, maybe the reason they decided not to use their trusted flagger status to ask Facebook or Twitter to ban me is because I know them all. Um, you know, maybe that constrained them. And I'm basically, you know, in many areas on their side. I've been a, a pretty loyal defender of the government up until March 2020. So so maybe they were constrained by that. But but a Labour government who decides that there's another emergency, a climate emergency, and that the sort of material the Daily Skeptic is producing and tweeting about and putting on Facebook um, is harmful disinformation that poses a threat to the British state and to the public. You know, if they decide that, you know, who's to say how far they'll go? Um, so I think it's very worrying, very worrying that journalists and scientists and MPs, member of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, have been monitored in this way because the government was able to persuade the people working with these agencies that we are legitimate targets, that we pose a threat to the general public, the welfare of the Commonwealth. I mean, really quite extraordinary. Okay, well, a few things there. I mean, one, you grow up imagining that the Ministry of Defence are sort of hardcore and serious people. It turns out they're just reading Toby's tweets and vaguely disapproving. I mean, I'm already doing that. And then um, this idea that they, they only didn't get you because you're basically their mate, that, that's quite chilling. I mean, and you're saying that lesser known people might be in trouble. That means me, basically. I mean, there's bound to be a report on me. It's probably more focused on like an isolated white male who spends a lot of time online and might crack at any minute. But you know, that's quite disturbing. That they've, they've probably got a special incel division um, within, <laughs> you know, the, the, the counter I didn't want to use that unit. word. <laughs> it's a choice with me. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is very chilling, Toby. And um, I also like the idea that they're reading Peter Hitchens stuff and all they're really getting is stuff about the decline of grammar school and the, the, the decadence of central heating. And they go, this guy's not a threat. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. But it does make me worry, finally, Toby, and I'm very serious though, about the things I've sent to you, like, have you got the package or let's bring down the government ASAP. You know what I mean? How far, how long have they been monitoring you for and how deep does it go? Do I have to worry about all those WhatsApps? Well, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. And the, um, I'm, I'm going on to GB News to talk about this this evening. And GB News contacted someone at the Ministry of Defence to ask them about the 77th Brigade's activities and why monitoring people like me was considered legitimate. And they very much stressed that they only monitored material that anyone could see in the public domain. They didn't use any powers to read my direct messages or my WhatsApp messages, at least so they say. Um, That's them uh, but, saying but, it though, isn't it? That's the well, but, in, in the In the big, yeah, in the big Brother Watch report, um, it does look at one particular case 
in which someone was um, monitored for something they said on a private Facebook account. Um, uh, so that wasn't available to anyone. You know, you had to be given permission by the owner of this Facebook account in order to read this content. But nonetheless, it was being monitored by one of these shadowy agencies, which suggests that the claim that they only looked at stuff which anyone, any member of the public could see uh, may not be right. But I don't. I think it's unlikely that they would. I mean, I talked to I talked to someone who knows about the activities of the seventy seventh brigade and exactly what their powers are, and he said that they would they wouldn't have the capacity to monitor things like WhatsApp or telephone calls um, or bugger conversations. Does, does he mean um, the tech capacity or? Does he, or well, a budgeting they, they, issue? I think. I think no. It could be could be both a tech capacity and a budget. I mean, I'm picturing you know Captain Mannering and, and Private Godfrey sitting there trying to take a photograph of you know our Twitter accounts with a kind of iPhone five. Um, but um, maybe that's maybe that's naive. It's probably a bit more sophisticated than that. But no, I think what he meant was that um, they actually don't have the authority to do that, and it wouldn't be them that applied for permission from a court or a magistrate to do that or the home office that's strictly something only the intelligence services could do because it'd be really tricky wouldn't it if they found something in your whatsapp but they can't really admit publicly that's where it's from i mean what do they do with that do they pretend what do they do with that they say we have we know things about him or because it looks so bad for them it's kind of like the nsa when they were doing all that stuff it looks bad for them but then they need but then if they find out toby young is is a dangerous kind of enemy of the state they need to act on it don't they (laughs) i certainly wouldn't rule out that um, some of the content that was posted on Facebook um, and which resulted in me and the Daily Skeptic account being uh, temporarily suspended was flagged up to them by government departments. Possibly even, I wouldn't rule out the PayPal thing, that being at the root of the PayPal closures either. It's so crazy. I mean, I'm making jokes about it because that's what I do, but it's so crazy to think about that time, how absurd it got. Um, it goes on all the time, but how bad it got, the fact that you know, then people like you and Peter Hitchens become people that the government, the Ministry of Defence needs to monitor. That's, that's so strange, isn't it? How, does, does it feel, lastly on this maybe, does it feel strange knowing this? Well, I suppose in some ways it's sort of a badge of honour, isn't it? Um, uh, you know, I, when, when I was talking to um, James Dellingpole about it on London Calling yesterday, I was sort of tempted to tease him and say, you know, are you a little bit cheesed off, James, that you weren't one of the people whose names cropped up? But actually, for all I know, he was being monitored by the same agencies. It's just that Big Brother Watch didn't contact him to ask him to submit any subject access requests. But I suppose, well, you know, you know they're in, working on a bigger file about James, a m- much bigger project <laughs> lasting yeah, I mean, years. I, I, one of the, I mean, it's, one of the interesting things about it that struck me is that, you know, even as recently as 25 years ago, you know, if The Guardian broke a story following an investigation showing that, you know, these shadowy agencies um, uh, only once removed from the security services were monitoring the activities of various journalists and it named those journalists, that would be an absolute badge of honour. You'd be celebrated. You know, you'd be lionised at dinner parties the length and breadth of Islington. Um, uh, whereas now, you and I might think of it as a badge of honour, but most people, I think, reading about it will think, well, no smoke without fire, you know, and because they use terms like disinformation and misinformation um, and bracket us with kind of crazy conspiracy theorists, you know, 
it's thought to, I think most, you know, certainly most Guardian readers, what I imagine, would think this is completely legitimate. And there's nothing, you know, no, no, nothing um, to be proud of um, in, in being monitored by these agencies. I mean, it's just like they're, they're now on the same side as the shadowy deep state agencies that as recently as 25 years ago, they would have thought of as the kind of epitome of evil. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll actually get onto that in a sec, but I just want to quickly say, yeah, one thing you'd be gutted if Constantine Kissin had a, a much bigger Ministry of Defence file on him. Just, you know, he's got a massive file. Um, but yeah, the the thing about the Guardian, yeah, and they can also people will say, oh, Toby's been cancelled, and it just they sort of they already want to get you, and it's just more, yeah, no smoke with that fire, like you say. But the the point about the media is key, and I thought maybe we could move on to Project Veritas with this because I wrote this article. Are we the mainstream media now? And I was making the point. Well, I was really just covering James O'Keefe's point that people are saying, well, the legacy media have largely ignored this story. And he was saying, no, no, we are the media. This has had millions and millions of views on Twitter. Whereas, like you say, the, 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 the so-called media are all just part of the establishment. And we talk about that a lot. I compared them in the article to that Twitter video of some parasites controlling a dead insect. And I said the media was a dead insect now. Just It's just propped up by the, the elites. But um, this Project Veritas thing was huge, wasn't it? It, it was basically a guy, and I'm going to talk about it later with Will on the science side, but the media side of it was interesting because it was it was this guy from Pfizer making all these admissions about gain of function and all this kind of thing. And then Project Veritas got him like they do. And then he goes berserk at the end of the video and tries to get out of it. He uses every tactic. He says, I don't feel safe. He rolls around on the floor. He gets violent. And he's kind of watching a guy melt that. And that led some people to say it was fake, which it wasn't. But the Project Veritas truthers came out already, the kind of Team James side of like, not sure I even trust Project Veritas. Like, really, guys, we, we can't trust them either. But it's very significant that, that this work they're doing, and there is this flip over now where people can just watch this stuff. The media ignores it. Tucker Carlson covered it. The Mail covered it, then took it down. and But, but then people can just see it for themselves. Yeah, it, I think the media, the mainstream media, the legacy media, deciding to ignore these stories isn't a particularly effective way of suppressing them. I mean, on the contrary, it may even, you know... Um, increase people's interest in finding out about them on alt media platforms. Um, but you know, certainly the way in which um, companies like Pfizer try and suppress embarrassing stories um, is not just to do, do its level best to make sure they get no coverage uh, in the legacy media. But Robert Malone published a piece, I think, in the Epoch Times, because um, uh, he was interviewed directly after the first Project Veritas video, and I think it was part of the package, um, uh, about what the significance of these revelations was. Um, and uh, Robert Malone being um, one of the creators of the mRNA vaccines, but he's, you know, gamekeeper turned poacher. Um, he said that watching the way in which um, big tech tried to kill the story was a masterclass in kind of information suppression. Uh, first of all, you know, Twitter and other social media platforms, including Parler and Getter, were flooded with people casting doubt on the veracity of um, the interview, you know, and whether this person really existed, whether he was an actor just pretending to be a Pfizer employee, or was he really a Pfizer employee? Had he not just been seconded? You know, casting doubt in every conceivable way on how reliable he was as a source and what he'd said. And in addition, then making sure that um, uh, the internet was effectively scrubbed 
I mean, they, they, you know, they ghosted him within 24 hours. He ceased to exist if you search for him, even in the Wayback Machine, which I thought was quite impressive. I didn't know that was possible. Um, but you couldn't even find references to him on the Wayback Machine within 24 hours. Uh, the, I mean, I thought it was quite smart at Project Veritas to um, keep a second shoe back. So the first shoe was the interview, the sensational revelations, got a huge amount of coverage, and they obviously predicted that the response by Pfizer would be to cast doubt on his credibility, whether he really works for Pfizer, should we take this seriously, which of course they did. And then 24 hours after they'd done their worst, they then released part two, in which he freaks out when he's confronted by the fact that he's just been talking to Project Veritas and it's all been captured on film. And then he reacts in exactly the way you'd expect a guilty person who really is a Pfizer senior executive to react. That that was that that was quite smart, I think, saving that back until you know people had tried to cast doubt on the legitimacy of the story, and then bang, you know, if 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 it was all a made up story, if he wasn't really a Pfizer executive, if he was just bullshitting the person he was trying to impress on this date, why did he react like that? You know, um, it it seemed pretty conclusive proof that the whole thing was totally legit. Yeah, I just did a little quick test then live googling Jordan Walker, which is his name, right? And it. I just got a baseball player all the way down the the results. And then when I put Jordan Walker Pfizer, I get Forbes. No Project Veritas video doesn't prove Pfizer was mutating COVID-19. And it's like immediately they're running cover for that. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, they tried to scrub it. It's very hard to scrub someone entirely from the internet, but they had a good go at it, didn't they? Very sinister. Um, And and, and that's really, um, it was the same tactics employed but on a kind of smaller, more amateurish scale um, by the British government during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, this is the battlefront when it comes to protecting uh, journalists and scientists and politicians from being censored. It's being censored by big tech at the behest of government agencies. Yeah. Uh, all right. Do you want to move on to Zahawi? I'm struggling to get that bothered about it, but it is a big story, I suppose, isn't it? Nadeem Zahawi losing the chairmanship of the Tory party. Um, it was all about this tax evasion. It, it, but he hasn't lost, even that doesn't lose him the whip like Bridgen, which Bridgen pointed out on Twitter, but he's but he's lost his job. And I think there was also some issue, I'm not sure if this came into it, but with the Greensill lobbying scandal, whereby Zahawi had said he hadn't sent messages to David Cameron, but he actually had. So there were a few things in there. And, and he, he was never to be going to go. I don't know why it took so long. And then Rishi was saying that he was really decisive and other people were saying, well, no, you, you weren't because it took you ages. I struggle to care. He was a sort of unimportant career politician. He may have an impressive sort of backstory, but he flip-flopped on COVID passports. He famously sort of lied to Claire Fox on Twitter about it. And, you know, do, you, do, you, do I have your word on that? She said, and she's like, yes, you do, Claire. They changed his mind. He flip-flopped on Boris. Many people have done that. He was chancellor very briefly, what, 68 days, something like that. And it, it was 63 or 68. And he, um, but, you know, it's, it's just more sleaze for the, the, the dead Tory party, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, you know I think some some members of the Tory Party um, are hoping the Parliamentary Conservative Party are hoping that Rishi Sunak will you know be the the John Major figure 
um, who managed against all odds to win the general election in 1992, even though everyone expected um, them to lose um, uh, after they defenestrated Margaret Thatcher. Um, but it's looking increasingly like, yes, he's a John Major figure, but he's John Major circa 1997, <laughs> not 1992, um, and, and, and will lose by an enormous margin. Um, and uh, there'll be a Labour landslide, uh, partly because just as in the dying days of the Major government, he's beset by all this sleaze. Um, and this was another example. And I think one of the problems with these sleaze stories is when it's twofold. First of all, he was supposed to be, you know, a clean, a squeaky clean alternative to Boris um, uh, with zero tolerance for sleaze. And as you say, um, it took him quite a long time to act um, uh, in, in this particular case. And he sort of initially, the kind of fallback position was, I don't want to sack him because due process has to be observed. And then a few days later sacked him when um, due process clearly hadn't been properly observed. And now Nadim Zahawi, instead of going quietly, is complaining um, that due process wasn't observed. So it seemed like, you know, he'd come up with that excuse and then ditched it because the pressure became too much. These scandals follow a particular trajectory usually in which... um, the government sort of initially tries to cling on to the errant minister um, uh, and then eventually realises the game is up and then tosses him to the wolves in a kind of particularly egregious way. And the minister usually learns about it on Twitter. Um, And that more or less is what happened to me. I was never a minister when I was um, cancelled in January 2018. Initially, Downing Street supported me. You know, Theresa May came out on the Mar show, said, she wasn't going to sack me, but she'd made it very clear that I should never do anything like that again. And it seemed like, you know, the government was holding firm. Um, and uh, and then a few days later, they began to wobble. And then, you know, I got the kind of, I got the call. And you know, in this situation, I've discussed this with other ministers who've been in this situation, who've been, you know, at the centre of these scandals and have had in the end to, to stand down. You don't get the call advising you to stand down, telling you the game is up. You know, you fought a good fight, but... It's over. You have to stand it. You have to fall on your sword. Um, the call comes from the smiling assassin. It's a friend of yours. The call comes from Rishi doesn't want to make the call because Rishi doesn't want bad blood between him and the minister. Um, he doesn't want to say anything that could be used against him in a newspaper article or in a memoir. So he gets the, the person's closest political ally to make the call and deliver the bullet. Um, uh, and I wonder who um, delivered the bullet to Nadim Zahawi, but um, I don't suppose it was it was um, uh, Rishi. I imagine it was somebody else. And that, that's that's one of the toughest moments when someone you think is your friend and ally, you think has been fighting your corner, you know, calls you obviously at the behest of the prime minister, and uh, and, and urges you to kind of go into a small room with a revolver and a glass of whiskey. Yeah, it's like Goodfellas, isn't it? When he when he's like when he's like and. Jimmy arrived early, which I'd never seen him do before, and he was nervous, you know, and he sat by the window. You know it's going to be your, your best friend that's going to whack you. So, yeah, yeah. it's exactly the same. It's also, exactly my, reminds me of football managers as well when they say they have a full support. You're like, yeah, he's, he's being sacked. Does this mean Zahari will have more time for you, Gov? That's what's worrying. Does he still want No, I think – well, I thought, I, think it was, I thought his tax problems – Arose from the fact that he sold YouGov, okay, uh, and 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 hadn't paid tax on the or hadn't paid enough tax on the proceeds of that sale. So I don't know. If, I don't think he's still involved. Uh, one thing I will say in Nadim Zahawi's defence is that when he was Education Minister um, in Boris's government after um, Gavin Williamson, um, he uh, was one of the few 
cabinet ministers who, um, instead of relying on the modelling data being produced by SAGE, um, actually knew, because he's a scientist by background, knew some scientists um, who effectively formed uh, a red team for him. So he was he was asking them to review the um, minutes of the SAGE meetings and SAGE's recommendations, um, uh, pushing back, you know, armed with that information. I think he was one of the few, if not the only minister to assemble his own red team to challenge the SAGE data. So he definitely deserves some points for doing that. Mm, okay, well, that's very generous. And the other question, Toby, is are you going to go for the chairmanship? Because you've thought about running, I think I read this in one of your articles, that you thought about running as a, as, a, as a minister in the past, but now you're thinking about going for the chairmanship. I mean, Boris has been mentioned, you've been mentioned by you, admittedly, but, you know, <laughs> you're well, in the running. As a, as a, as a, uh, well, I did, uh, I did, I did, I was once upon a time on the Conservative candidates list, um, and uh, which meant that I could throw my hat into the ring if, you know, um, uh, if there are any vacancies in any any seats, um, and uh, I took myself off it at the beginning of 2018 because I knew that as soon as the Conservative Party woke up to the fact that I was still on the candidates list, they'd ask me to step down. So instead of having a second phone call with my best friend, <laughs> um, I, I thought I'll just resign voluntarily, and so I did. Um, uh, and I, and I had at that point thought about it. I hadn't decided to do it but i wanted to keep my options open um but i in the end concluded that you know for a variety of reasons it was it wasn't worthwhile um but uh, one possibility is um you know you can still have a career in the conservative party uh, even if you're not an mp or a peer uh, as you know a vice chairman of the conservative party but um i don't think they're i don't think they're likely to approach me about that uh, usually they're people um who can help them raise money um and they're usually kind of you know very loyal people who can go out onto the sunday morning chat shows and kind of defend people like nadim zahawi just before the prime minister delivers the bullet um uh, but i i i don't think for a second they 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 will approach me i only i when you say i suggested that i only mentioned it to you um nobody else um but i think i think uh, i think um i think uh uh i think jacob Rees mogg would be good i mean I, I don't know whether he's available because he's now been signed up by gb news hasn't he and his uh, new chat show is about to be launched is me and this mogg, Sunday, the first one colleagues who, who, yeah. I don't know when it starts. You, you know more about it than me, but me and Mike, I never thought I'd be colleagues with Jacob. He's more, life's very, very strange. You know, when I was playing the Frog and Bucket, Preston, I didn't think pretty soon I'll be I'll be working at, in journalism with Jacob Rees Mogg as one of my colleagues. But he, you know, he is good, Mike. He was good on LBC when he took it over briefly, mm. and uh, it, and Farage went. You know, also went that same path. They both had radio shows on LBC, a bit different on TV, but I'm sure it'll be good. Looking forward to it. I mean, yeah, and you've got. Nadine Doris on Talk TV is a kind of rival. We've got Portillo yeah. on GB, so yeah. this is where they and all got, come. And you've, got, and you've got you've got Esther and Phil, of course. Oh yeah, um, on, it's going to turn into Saturday the mornings. canceled Tories channel or the ex Tories channel. They're not really cancelled, are they? But it's going to be the ex Tories channel. I'm just worried they're going to yeah. bump me out of a job, Toby, because I was meant to be on the other night, and Graham Linehan was on, so I suddenly got bumped for the more famous Graham Linehan, Oof. and they sold it to me as. Well, you've got so much on at the moment, Nick. You'll have a day off. I'm like, I, I can see what you're doing, guys. Like, I'm, it's not working. <laughs> at the same time, I am so busy. I was happy to have the night off. So it's a bit of a conflict for me. You know, I wanted to not go in versus well, don't want to get bumped. Look at it this way, Nick. Um, you know, uh, you've got a job on GB News and, you, and you, you managed to do that without being a Conservative MP. I mean, if the most you can hope for, even after being, you know, a cabinet minister and at one stage talked about as a future leader of the party, which 
Jacob Rees-Mogg has been. Um, if if you know if the summit of your career post politics is hosting a show on GB News, um, it kind of suggests that uh, maybe it's not worth all those hours doing the constituency surgeries and answering emails from people you know who are a little You're bit right. unhinged. <laughs> I always thought, like, should I go into politics? And it's like, no, they're coming into my world. Yeah, That's you're right. right. I mean, I've already made it. I hosted Head On as last night. Everyone says you're great at hosting. I've already done what they're t- desperately... This is the thing, people yeah. are always trying to desperately get on GB and always, like, writing in, and people are always like, oh, I want to get on. I always find it a bit sad. I'm like, I'm not bothered. And yet, I, you know, it just comes to me, Toby. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> but... Um, it's funny that that's the best they can hope for. Though they'll probably be on a slightly higher wage than me. If, if it's true, if if you were instead of being on headliners, um, a minister in Rishi Sunak's cabinet, but in a marginal constituency, and looking at being back on the job market next year or shortly thereafter, you would be thinking, maybe if I play my cards right, I could be the next Nick Dixon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a kind of weird meta kind of thing. But yeah, I know you're right. If, I suppose, yeah. Especially now, I'm hosting occasionally, but you're absolutely right. So I think Mog will be good. I don't know. They're, they're sort of they're quite interesting with their hiring policy, aren't they? GB, you never quite know which way it's going to go. They'll, they'll get someone very mainstream, then someone far more out there. I mean, what yeah, do you I think imagine about? they'll have to they'll have to they'll have to offer jobs to some ex Labour MPs soon, or, or risk um, uh, oh, being yeah, accused of just being a retirement home for ex Conservative MPs. Yeah, that'll be awful. Oh, that'd be awful, wouldn't it? Well, so Alistair Campbell's got a show. Can you imagine? He'll be. He'll, he'll, imagine if um, you, you, yeah, if uh, you suddenly discover that you're going to be on headliners every time you're on with Alistair Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the ultimate nightmare. Or just me and Prescott, and I'm like ducking punches. I mean, who, who, who else? Who else is there? Obviously, Blair's going to run the World Economic Forum, so it can't be him. I'm running. I don't know that many Labour people. Imagine we had to get Owen Jones with his own show well, just for balance. Gloria De Piera, is that how you pronounce it? She she is an ex Labour MP, isn't she? She's on GB. Oh yeah, but she seems normal. Yeah, yeah. She's one of the normal um, ones. Yeah, I'm not. I, I wonder who. Yeah, it's hard to think. I mean, yeah, maybe Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, Corbyn could definitely do a show. That'd be interesting. Yeah. He's probably well. Piers Corbyn would be great. I mean, he's very anti. Uh, it could be. Co- it could be Jeremy and Piers. You know, <laughs> that's a great Jeremy. Idea. Jeremy looks reasonable by contrast with his brother. Welcome yeah. to Corbin Brothers. Well, welcome to Corbin Corner. Corbin Corner, two PM, like no one watching in the afternoon, uh, banging on about communism. <laughs> That's the worst and, show on and TV. And the facts, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeremy's the moderate one. That's hilarious. What a show! Um, it'd be like the new Team Toby and Team James. Jeremy is Toby, and Piers is James. It might be a great way for. Jezza to rehabilitate himself. They should do a podcast, Corbin Corner. That's a great idea, Toby. Um, yeah. You, you think wanna... I am anti-Semitic? Wait till you hear what my brother has to say. <laughs> He's anti-Semitic and anti-vax, and he thinks there's fluoride in the water. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. To be honest, I agree with Piers Morgan's views on on, on the vaccine and stuff. I don't know what they are. Piers, but... Wait, 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 wait. You said Piers Morgan. Did yeah, I? Okay, that, that's confusing. You. Yeah, no, I definitely don't agree with Piers Morgan because I'm blocked by him on Twitter because he wanted no one to get healthcare if you'd had the vaccine. His views were absolutely... Actually, Piers Corbyn's views were more reasonable than Piers Morgan's views on the issue of COVID. Hmm. No other issues. I don't know what Piers <laughs> Corbyn's views exactly were on the vaccine, but I, I know he was anti it. <laughs> he was definitely anti it. Okay, yeah. good. Well, do you want to do our first advert, Toby? Let's do our first ad, yeah. Um, and our first ad, um, I forgot to say yesterday. So um, as per usual, um, uh, the advertiser for has given me strict instructions not to change a single 
word, not to change a comma or a full stop, let alone a word in his um, read. So I'm about to read it as written. Um, but I realized when I read a very similar ad by him um, on London Calling without changing a word yesterday that I didn't say at the beginning, it was an ad for Thor. And because Thor, in his own rather mysterious way, had sort of concealed that fact until the very last minute, I think I imagine the listeners were a bit confused. But anyway, so this time I'm going to set it up properly. This is a personal note from Thor. And this is Thor speaking. Do you fancy early retirement or an exit with FU money? Perhaps it's closer than you think. But first, a word of warning. Because those who obviously possess FU money, from Branson to Brankman Fried, all have to support the system's current thing. As an enterprising three-thinker, there's little point either in emulating Andrew Tate to create your exit because you'll come to the attention of all the wrong people. Instead, join my clients and quietly, number one, decide what the FU money is for, FU equals freedom for you. You may be pleasantly surprised at how modest a sum can purchase large quotas of freedom. An island, a small holding, an ocean-capable craft, perhaps. Number two, create your plan to get there as enjoyably, efficiently, and quietly as possible. And number three, work the plan consistently. To see my speedy wee boat, high-speed cave run, under an island that we own, and to keep in touch, go to thorholt.substack.com. But please don't search for my name on Substack because you won't find me. This is not for normie punters. Instead, enter this address in your browser's search bar, thorholt.substack.com, or connect to Thor directly via LinkedIn on linkedin.com slash in slash Thorholt, and mention you heard about it on this podcast. And I recommend Thor. Just knowing him, you start to get money. People respond to me just for my Substack, mentioning them on my Substack already. He's a top guy. And also, he talks about Andrew Tate. I said to him he should have his own war room out on this island he, he goes on. He's, he's on this island. He's driving his boat really fast through caves and stuff. Could be called Thor Room. Think about it. Andrew Tate's got the war room. Why not the Thor Room? I just thought of that, Thor. You're welcome. So, yeah. But I do highly recommend <laughs> He should Thor. be paying, paying us more now. Absolutely. Yep. Um, all right. Thanks for that, Thor. So, should we do Sturgeon? So, I wanted to talk about, well, I thought we had to talk about the ongoing trans madness of Sturgeon, she came out with this particularly shocking and pathetic thing that, that sort of harked back to the basket of deplorables, Hillary Clinton talking about Trump supporters, of course. And, and, and Sturgeon said, but there are people who have opposed the bill that cloak themselves in women's rights to make it acceptable. But just as they're transphobic, you'll also find they are deeply misogynist, often homophobic, possibly some of them racist as well. <laughs> Love the way she just throws that in. Why not go for the hat trick, Nicola? I mean, just absolute lowest level ad homs, if you don't like my insane trans policies that lead to potentially women getting raped in prison, then you, you're probably racist. What? Yeah, I, I felt that she was flailing at that point. Um, Nicola Sturgeon's political judgment seems to have deserted her. Um, and, you know, she clearly made a howling error um, and took a long time to correct it um, and has now belatedly corrected it but instead of you know putting her hands up and saying i made a mistake there are some circumstances in which to relax the self-id policy could lead to male rapists being housed in women's prisons we overlook that possibility i 
downplayed that risk. It clearly is a material risk, and we have to duly amend the legislation to make sure that never happens again. Um, that would have been the right political response and, you know, a bit of contrition, a bit of humility. But instead, she goes on the attack in her kind of inimitable Rottweilerian style. Um, and that's just totally, that's the wrong tone. Um, and it, it sort of, I think a lot of people are speculating in the wake of this, you know, particular scandal that she may not be much longer for the leadership of the SNP, you know, will she be leading the SNP at the next um, Scottish election? I don't know. Maybe not even at the next general election, which doesn't give them much time to get rid of her. I mean, one of the problems the SNP has is there's no obvious successor. I think they're fighting like cats in a sack as to who should succeed her. Um, she was um, Alex Salmond's obvious successor, his heir apparent, groomed by him. Um, uh, she doesn't have any obvious successor, maybe because she wanted to try and cling on to power as long as she possibly could. But that has placed the SNP now in quite a vulnerable position now that she's, I think, pretty much a busted flush. Yeah, surely she's finished. I mean, who knows the, the way she's managed to hold on so far? Who knows? But for one thing, her trans policy was absolutely unworkable because she's sort of admitted now this Adam guy who's got the face tattoo, who's an obvious bloke, who's changed his name to Isla. He obviously, and she's sort of saying, no, he shouldn't be in a in a women's prison. But then the policy seems to be, as far as I can gather, that Sturgeon just does it on a sort of case-by-case basis. I mean, I once mocked Leo, my very good colleague, Leo Kirst, for um, he was saying that you're trans if you've made an effort. Basically, if you'd made enough effort that Leo thought you were a hot woman, then you were trans. But the ones that are just blokes with beards who say they are, aren't. I said, Leo, the problem with this policy is that they have to all come before you and you have to analyze it on a case-by-case basis whether they've made a sufficient effort. So it's unworkable. And Sturgeon has the same problem here because she's sort of saying, well, you know, we, there's a rigorous process. In that case, you know, it's not obvious that you automatically get a pass to a woman's prison just because you say. And it's like, well, okay, then, well, what are the rules then, Nicola? And it's just, oh, it's a process. It's like, no, just don't have men in women's prisons. That's the only policy that's been working for a long time. I mean, how can this individual policy it doesn't mean anything. How can it possibly work? And, and on the other point about how she sort of alienated herself, that I covered a piece that in the Daily Skeptic that the Telegraph had run called Scotland, how Scotland became the wokest country in the world. And mm. people, his point is, is the one we often hear that actually these po- policies aren't popular with Scottish voters. Scottish people haven't suddenly all gone mad. So I imagine when this Adam, whatever his name is, Adam, what is it, Adam Graham or something, when the case of this guy came out, who's now calling himself Isla Bryson, because people are, there's probably so much pent up rage about the absurdity of wokeness and the threat to women that I think it's just all come out now. And Sturgeon's maybe underestimated how much that groundswell of rage. What do you think? Yeah. Um, well, I think, yeah, I, th- I think, I think, I think it's certainly damaged the cause of Scottish independence um, and, and set it back, um, uh, which is, you know, all to the good. Um, it's an interesting question as to why Scotland is so much woker. Um, than the rest of the United Kingdom, um, uh, even than Wales. It's not just, I think, because um, the SNP has sort of somehow managed to bottle this toxic cocktail, which is a combination of ethno-nationalism and, um, you know, social justice, wokery-pokery. I think it's also because some of the kind of woke uh, ideas land better in Scotland than they have here, partly because they rhyme with um, Scotland's particular strand of Puritanism um, even better than they rhyme with, you know, 
English Puritanism, but also because the Scots, I think, um, some anyway, um, like to cast themselves as victims of the English. And instead of thinking of themselves as being complicit in the sins of the empire, they now think of themselves as a country that was colonised. So they are victims alongside all the other indigenous people that the evil empire colonised over the past, you know, 300 years. I think that, that, that that's an appealing idea um, uh, that, 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 that resonates with, with some Scots, not all Scots, but with some Scots. So I think that's one of the, I think wokery has found more fertile ground for that reason in Scotland than it's found in any other part of the United Kingdom. I think Wales is a very close second. Interesting. I mean, of course, Thor is Scottish and is absolutely against all this. Let's be very clear, our sponsor <laughs> and, and many Scots. Yeah. I tend to think it's even, I, I see your point. They've got used to victimhood and so now why not add a few other victim points? I, I, sort of, but I, I wonder though if Scottish people are really like that or if they just, yes, yeah, some of them will do anything to hate the English, but mainly aren't they just oh, being like, forced yeah. to go along with it by Sturgeon and they don't go along with it. They just simply think they're just normal people. Two thirds of them are against most of these policies, etc. Yes, yes, yeah. And, and I think actually, I think people have a tendency to exaggerate how different the Scots are to uh, the English. But if you look at, you know, the social attitude surveys, turns out that on most issues, they think the same way. Yeah, I suppose if you really want independence, you could turn a blind eye to some of the woke stuff that you probably don't really approve of in your heart of hearts, but you're like, I really want independence and to get out of, you know what I mean? So maybe you'd you'd sort of turn a blind eye to some of it. I can see that argument. Well, I I think there are two grounds on which you can object to um, Sturgeon's kind of wading into you know, this trans issue. I mean, the first is that, you know, on on kind of, you know, the grounds that we have been objecting, um, of course, men should not be housed in women's prisons, particularly not rapists. Um, but there's another objection too, which is, which is, you know, she clearly hadn't thought the policy through, hadn't, you know, mastered the detail, hadn't thought about the difficulties that might arise. It's not just straightforward to define trans women as women. There are circumstances in which that's going to be politically difficult. Um, uh, But the fact she hadn't thought it through suggests a kind of inattentiveness. Uh, And I think that's the real problem. If I was a Scot, that's the reason I'd be souring on the SNP. It's not not that I disagree so profoundly um, with their positions on various issues um, or wanting to be an independent country. It's just they're so unbelievably incompetent um, in every area, whether it's the NHS Scotland, education, um, the amount of lawlessness on Scotland streets in cities like Glasgow. You know, they just seem to be making an absolute hash of governing. Um, uh, And, and, you know, that... and if I if I if I was thinking about you know Scottish independence, I mean this argument was made about as an argument was made during the E referendum. Um, uh, I remember you know I was one of the people out there sticking up for the Leave cause, the Leave case, um, and um, one of the argu- one of the counter arguments made was, um, but does Britain have the capacity to govern itself? Would it be able? Um, to survive outside the European Union? Hasn't its capacity been hollowed out to such an extent 
over the last 40 plus years um, that we really can't govern ourselves now. We just lack the ability. And I was always thought that was a poor argument and a very unpatriotic argument. And, you know, even if we even if, you know, we didn't have any trade negotiators at the moment, we could soon acquire them. You know, we can always reinvent ourselves, British genius, etc. But I think in the case of Scotland, that is quite a good argument. You know, we've seen how the SNP have done, even with a limited amount of responsibility for governing a country. Just think how bad they'd be if they were given complete responsibility. I mean, they just think that, you know, seemingly the, the Scots lack the capacity to govern themselves. Yeah, I'm, I still think it's just Sturgeon and, and not the people I'm very... And I've got Scottish cousins, so maybe I keep having to make that distinction. But yeah, Sturgeon is certainly messed up anyway. It, it's... I don't know if I go as far as you saying they couldn't go themselves, but maybe you may be right. I, I'm, I haven't thought about it enough. The, certainly, this trans thing she's messed up. Whether it was a bid to cause constitutional havoc and she was just using it, or whether she's genuinely a genuine believer in the madness of, of her trans beliefs. Either way, I think she underestimated the backlash of this Adam Graham person and cases like that, and all the many cases that have come out like that now, and it's completely destroyed it. But lastly, on that, do you think she will actually go? Because I just can't quite bring myself to but hope that she'll actually go. Um, well, will she be replaced really by some other nutter? Yeah, Hamza. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, he's all. Uh, the the the, uh, the politicians very rarely go entirely voluntarily. Um, usually, they go after losing an electoral contest. Um, Jacinda Ardern, exception. Um, so, I would have, if as a betting man, I put my money on her sticking around until um, the next general election. But I expect Labour to do much better. Um, in 24, 25 than they did in 2019. And I think that will be the death knell for her. Okay. In Scotland, I mean. All right. Well, I think we've done enough on Sturgeon. And um, but on, a, on a similar topic, though, but a lighter note, perhaps, in terms of the gender madness, perhaps we should cover Sam Smith's video. Now, I'm sure listeners may have seen it because it may have been thrust into your Twitter timeline or wherever you go on the internet, whether you like it or not, because I didn't want to see Sam Smith's new music video but I've seen much of it because of it being put into my Twitter timeline by people who want to show you these things. And this is the thing we do sometimes. We, we say, look at this degenerate thing. It's like, did you have to show me every degenerate thing? So it's basically a video of Sam Smith with no shirt on, being a bit fat, appears to be getting urinated on from various angles. And um, some people say this is just absolutely amazing. Like GB's Amy Nichol, who is very nice until she says her opinions, said that, you know, we were being puritanical. She said someone was being puritanical and he's living his best life. And you've got to ask, if this isn't too far, you know, what is? And it's not really, it's not that, I mean, so Owen Jones said, sex has always been a running theme in modern pop music and music videos often flaunt it. But Sam Smith has made the criminal offense of being A, queer and B, not skinny. And in an increasingly anti-LGBTQ culture, that can't be tolerated, which of course is classic Owen Jones bilge. But I mean, yeah. what we have is, We've always had, yeah, we've had provocative videos, but it, it wasn't always just completely gratuitous. There was some art to it with some provocation. Yeah. What this Sam Smith video is just what's what's all the worst things we can do, and it's not just LBGQQQ thing because um, there was that, <laughs> that what, there was that WAP video W A P wasn't it, which was the uh, which is some woman had, which was I'm not going to say what it stands for because we'll have to bleep it out anyway. But there have been similar things involving women that were not gay that were similarly gratuitous and Ben Shapiro covered them and read the lyrics out and things like this. So it, the theme is not, oh, it's gay people. It's just gratuitous videos that have no artistic merit. And I can't even remember any of the song 
in the clips I've seen. All you remember is this, these two shocking images, Toby. And um, and so that happened. And then there's Richard Madeley also commenting on it. And he managed to do something quite amazing. He managed to so-called misgender not only Sam Smith, but in talking about Sam Smith, misgender the guest in the studio as well, <laughs> who also claimed to be called they. So he referred to Sam Smith as he instead of they. And Susanna told him off because, of course, she complies with the new rules. He went, oh, sorry, yeah, absolutely, no, absolutely, sorry. And then he did it again with the guest, and the guest went, uh, I identify as they as well. He's like, absolutely sorry, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's like a minefield of this middle-aged bloke just stepping in woke yeah, but landmines. Funny. Next, ne- next time I'm on, um, you know, uh, Good Morning Britain, um, uh, was that what it was, Good Morning Britain? I think so. Um, uh, I'm I'm gonna to I'm gonna to I'm gonna I'm gonna to say to Richard Madeley, um by the way, Richard, um I identify as they them. Um, and <laughs> and see if he uh, You're right, Toby, you're absolutely joking. right. I'm so yeah. sorry. Yeah. I mean what I mean it's why I mean don't apologize, just uh, it's absolutely a person can't be a they. It's impossible to spell to not spell, but to grammatically even write it out in a newspaper. It doesn't make any sense. And they all do it. The Daily Mail does it. They, they all go along with it. And it's like, and we shouldn't yeah. call this Adam Graham person a woman. That's a man. And we shouldn't call Sam Smith they. That doesn't exist. You can't be a plural. Stop the madness. Yeah. Um, I read a really good piece by Gareth Roberts. Um, I think it was in The Spectator. Um, and he was he was objecting to the Sam Smith song and video uh, on similar grounds to you. It's not that its uh, content was particularly outrageous or um, in kind of appalling taste. Um, His objection was there was just nothing behind it. It was just provocation for the sake of provocation. And he compared Sam Smith to Mark Armand, who at the time, you know, was thought to be pretty out there, um, certainly was kind of roundly condemned by, you know, the Daily Mail and Mary Whitehouse and whatnot, uh, and was a kind of, you know, was was thought to be a very shocking kind of pop artist. Um, but there was kind of a lot of thought about it. He knew about the avant-garde. He knew about kind of um, abstract art. Um, he knew about, you know, various French avant-garde experimental authors. It, it wasn't just, it didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't just provocation for the sense of provocation. It was part of a kind of pop tradition, um, uh, an avant-garde tradition of provocation um, uh, for seemingly, you know, political or artistic purposes. Whereas in the case of Sam Smith, it just seems to be, you know, a bid for yet more attention. Um, I don't think, I don't really, I mean, maybe it's, maybe I know it's taboo to question um, whether his um, new identity is an authentic expression of his true self. Um, I know we're supposed to take it at face value and, you know, never question it just in case it is. Um, uh, and we can be accused of, you know, um, uh, uh, trying to erase their existence. But in his case, it really does feel as though he's just looking for a new string to his bow in order to keep you know, keep being written about in the sun and keep being talked about on social media and keep selling those units. I feel like with a lot of other artists too, but it, it just, in his case, it just, it feels like, you know, he's just gone too far. He's just made it too obvious. It's all a dog and pony show just to kind of get clicks. Yeah, it's an authentic expression of being a twat. And um, and Gareth Roberts' piece was, yeah, Sam Smith and the embarrassing terribleness of LGBTQI plus culture. And it, yeah, in The Spectator. Yeah, I think you've summed it up pretty well, Toby. But I think we're ultimately the suckers in a way, because as you say, it's got millions of views. Everyone's talking about it on Twitter. We're talking about it now. So aren't, aren't we, haven't we been punked? 
this is this is Dellingpole's line. Whenever I ask him about something like this, he'd say, "No, sh- let's just not talk about it. They want us to talk about it. It's bread and circuses. The real stuff is going on behind the scenes. Deep State, WEF, Klaus Schwab. Why are we talking about Sam Smith?" But you know, I <laughs> I think Klaus Schwab's a distraction at- as well for the real guy behind him. We never see. <laughs> Oh, yeah, maybe. All right. Well, let's do our, our second advert. Um, our friend Dan, who is certainly not a they, he's definitely a he. <laughs> and um, he has said, so Toby, in this crazy world of cancel culture, I want to let you know that I'm currently boycotting any company that sells items I can't afford. Sometimes, though, you need to buy big, expensive items like houses. For this or any other financial frustrations, you need Dan Gaskin. Dan, a fellow skeptic, all-round good egg, father of six, husband of one, and owner of Crest Mortgages, is here to bring financial good cheer. An ex-Royal Navy warfare officer who's owned and sold companies, Dan now enjoys making sure people are financially fulfilled. To talk through a frustrating financial matter, help with house moves, commercial mortgages, equity release, or life assurance, call 0116-502-300 in confidence. Visit crestmortgages.co.uk and connect with Dan at www.linkedin.com slash in slash Dan Gaskin. And for the FCA, Crest Mortgages is a trading style of Epiphany Investments Limited, which is an appointed representative of the Open Work Partnership, a trading style of Open Work Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. We choose to be part of the Open Work Partnership and award-winning network. Your house may be repossessed if you do not keep up with repayments on your mortgage, so don't do that. And once again, for Dan, it is 0116-502-300 crestmortgages.co.uk, linkedin.com slash in slash Dan Gaskin. And I can confirm Dan is a top guy and he's the right guy to call if you need help with any of that. All right, now let's go over and do the serious bit with Will. So I'm here with Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic. Got some great stories this week. And Will, this one went pretty much viral for you on Twitter. And it was UK becomes latest country to ban COVID boosters for under 50s. That's right, Nick. This is the latest advice from the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccinations and Immunisations, who have advised the government and the government has accepted that booster jabs for COVID-19 should no longer be available to under 50s, to healthy under 50s unless they fall into certain clinical risk groups. So uh, big news, the end of the vaccination, the end of the booster campaigns for younger people, about time we might say. We went for a provocative heading on this one, which is the UK becomes the latest country to ban COVID boosters to the under 50s, which as you've said, has caught the imagination of the internet and went viral, tens of thousands of views for this one. Uh, we did have a little uh, note from Reuters fact check to ask whether it was really reasonable to describe it as being a banning of boosters for the under 50s. But uh, I responded to that uh, saying that the permission has been withdrawn and that the heading doesn't need to have all the qualifications and the uh, exceptions to it. And uh, um, amazingly, uh, the person from the team, the Reuters fact check team, actually accepted the answer and said they wouldn't go ahead with the fact check. So I felt like a a small victory um, on that one. And it's good to see that the advice is catching up, or at least beginning to catch up with the reality. Yeah, great victory there against Reuters. I always assume those fact checkers were just totally you know, fake and, and totally partial. And, and But you've actually managed to get them to listen to reason, which is amazing. I know, you just kind of assume that they'll just do it anyway because they've just got an agenda and, they're just, and they just need to do what their 
what, what the Ministry of Truth has told them to do, but they did actually listen to reason. So that was great. And the reason that the JCVI gave was just the lack of efficacy. Um, lots of people have pointed out that there was no mention of safety issues or any of the studies which have shown that younger people are at more risk from the jabs than from COVID. So, or at least that they, they will, won't prevent as much as they cause, but at least it's the right direction. Yeah. All right. Let's do this one because this is a massive story. And it's Pfizer doing gain-of-function research to mutate COVID and make more vaccines. And this is the Project Veritas video that went massively, massively viral. But I thought I'd come to you for the sort of technical side of it to to figure out what we actually learned from that. Because I learned that there was a guy acting like a fool and it was funny that he got caught. But I want to know what the actual science of it. Yeah, the uh, yeah huge uh, viral video. This uh, complete media blackout, as as you've said. So it was left to alternative sites and Twitter to uh, make a big thing of this. Uh, but one of the interesting things about it, of course, it's about the fact that this exec uh, revealed on a date with a honey trap from Project Veritas that they were carrying out uh, forms of gain of function research that they were that they were making the virus better, making their own mutants in order to test their vaccines. Not a good thing to be doing, of course. Not great to be making new variants. We've got enough variants, immune escaping variants from nature without adding more of our own. Uh, but the interesting thing is, as a, from a technical point of view of this, is that Dr. Robert Malone did a, a follow-up article to, uh, to this where he pointed out that actually, someone has shown him, there was an article in Stat News in August 2021, so well over a year ago, 18 months ago, in which all of this that Pfizer were doing the gain-of-function research, the creating their own mutants uh, for the purposes of vaccine research, was actually set out in this article in August 2021. So it, w- it wasn't very well noticed, this article, so it's not like everyone was, was aware of it, hence this, this bombshell of it being revealed from the, from the exec. But oddly enough, they had actually been open about it, and really, we should have picked up on it. That's the lesson of this. We should actually have picked up on it uh, before now and noticed that they were doing this dangerous uh, research. So, uh, so that was an interesting additional... Uh, additional detail so which explains of course why Pfizer when they put out a statement didn't actually deny it Um, they just defended it and said essentially we do it because the government tells us we have to which is also an interesting way of uh, passing the buck and blaming the government so uh, yeah a a really interesting story and just uh, shines more light on what's really going on behind the closed doors of the uh, pharmaceutical laboratories. Yeah, and as you say, the media blackout that I mentioned was a reference to probably my article, which I wrote for the Daily Skeptic. Are we the mainstream media now? Because James O'Keefe pointed out in a Twitter space, and he's the guy from Project Veritas, that someone said something about the mainstream media because the Daily Mail took this down very quickly. I think only Tucker Carlson covered it in America, or hardly anyone. And he just pointed out, but are they really the mainstream media? Because we have millions and millions of views on this. So Twitter is the mainstream now, and the legacy media is even more irrelevant than ever. Yeah, especially if they're going to keep ignoring major stories because they go against the trusted news narrative. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's do this one. MHRA court not doing its promised vaccine safety monitoring again. Yes, this is uh, exclusive to the Daily Skeptic, our resident writer about the the misdeeds of the MHRA. That's the uh, that's the medicine drug regulator for uh, the UK has has written about FOI freedom of information requests he's done that show and confirm that the MHRA promised when it brought the vaccines out as it should do, it promised that it would do all kinds of in depth detailed vaccine safety monitoring and 
where are these studies? It has produced something on one, maybe two side effects. The uh, blood clots is the main is the main thing it's looked at. But where where is the rest? All the other side effects, all the other adverse events that have been observed and noticed. Where is the promised safety monitoring? It just hasn't appeared. And so yet again, we see that this this regulator, the head of it, June Rain, said that uh, she is moving it from being a regulator to an enabler, which is, of course, the opposite of what we want the regulator to be doing. We want the regulator to be stopping bad things, uh, not enabling bad things. And, and so yet again, we see that in action. All right, let's do this one. It's on lockdown. Lockdown responsible for thousands of alcohol deaths, say the ONS. Yeah, new data from the new official data from the Office for National Statistics highlighted by Professor Carl Hennigan and his colleague Tom Jefferson, Dr. Tom Jefferson. And they found the the alcohol death data, which came out uh, for 2022. And uh, it was published around Christmas. So it's uh, so it was not really noticed because uh, people were doing some of their own uh, alcohol drinking and not um, and not paying attention to, to data from the ONS on alcohol drinking. And it shows that deaths from specifically attributed to alcohol were up by thousands in 2020 and 2021. So it really shows the impact of lockdown. And they, and they point out and in fact the ONS itself points out that this can only be because of lockdown and what's more the deaths from alcohol they don't they don't just happen because people start drinking a bit more during lockdown they happen because the effect the harm the injury accumulates over several years and so it can only be because people who were already drinking um, and had a problem with that really went for it in a bad way uh, during the lockdowns as you would expect and would be was completely predicted and thousands more died so Carl and Tom point out that this is one of the causes behind the excess death the many many thousands of excess deaths that we've been seeing in the last few years all right let's move on to this one which I actually had a small hand in because I edited it and chose a nice picture which is why it did so well on the site this is from Chris Morrison and it's scientists struggle to understand why Antarctica hasn't warmed for over 70 years despite rising CO2 yeah, major story this and uh, went uh, viral um, on the site because really so obviously contrary to the CO2 is causing catastrophic warming across the globe. The Antarctic has not experienced any warming for this uh, for this period of when the CO2 levels have been, um, as we know, uh, rising considerably during the 20th century. And there's just no sign of the warming, except in one small section of it in the west of the continent, but the rest of it uh, flat, no warming. So, and of course, this is baffling scientists because they have a very particular theory with very particular models, uh, which have uh, one explanation, which is obviously not working out for them. So Chris wrote about the fact that this is uh, yet more evidence that scientists may not actually fully understand everything that's going on with Earth's climate. Shocking, I know. All right, well, let's end on a story that everyone will enjoy, Matt Hancock getting sued. So this is Andrew Bridgen sues Matt Hancock for £100,000 over anti-Semitic smear in vaccine row. And actually, Bridgen's added a tweet today that I thought was very interesting. He says, I was suspended from the Conservative Party for having serious concerns about the harm that vaccines cause. And he put vaccines in inverted commas. Nadim Zahawi has been fined for tax avoidance and breaking the ministerial code. And he's still a Conservative MP. Funny old world, isn't it? What do you think, Will? 
Yeah, yeah, double standards. Yeah, it was quite clear when Bridgen was suspended that the so-called anti-Semitic remark was uh, was just an excuse to do it. I mean, even in the statements that the chief whip made, they only added that as a kind of aggravating factor. Uh, the main reason they gave was spreading so-called uh, misinformation about the vaccines. And of course, the, uh, the the vast majority of what they're calling misinformation is just um, all of the data and statistics and studies that we're very familiar with on the Daily Skeptic and the Weekly Skeptic. So it's... Uh, it's not fair, of course. It's not right. It's very much a case of trying to punish a dissident and and control the narrative. And uh, Matt Hancock was particularly egregious in his in his allegations in the in the House, accusing him of being anti-Semitic in his statements and putting it on Twitter as well. So not covered by. Uh, House of Commons privilege. And so Andrew Bridgen is taking him to court for for defamation, suing him for £100,000. That's the new development in this. And so we wish him all the best with that. We've published several articles on the Daily Skeptic, of course, defending uh, Andrew, not that we necessarily would uh, support everything that he says, um, but that, isn't that, doesn't that go for um, for anybody? We're not, uh, we don't, we don't all agree with each other. That's uh, that's just the nature of things. But uh, certainly we've had Jewish writers um, in particular writing that they didn't see anything anti-Semitic in what he what he said. So um, we will wish him all the best with that, uh, with that action. Yeah, and absolutely. I, and I always said it wasn't anti-Semitic. Was it the smartest thing to do? Not necessarily, uh, but it wasn't anti-Semitic. And Hancock's in trouble probably because he, he said it in the comments, but he also said it in a tweet, which doesn't have the same protections. So he is a bit reckless old Hancock, isn't he? Oh, that's it. And let's be honest, we all want to see Hancock get some comeuppance and get something, get what's coming to him. So let's just hope this is a this is a small part of it. But we'll see. I mean, you never know quite sure how woke the judges are going to be, are you? So um, we'll have to we'll have to see. Yeah, fingers crossed for the right result. All right, thanks, Will. We'll catch up with you again next week. Great, thanks, Nick. Okay, Toby, do you want to do our third ad? Yeah, so this is an ad for the Jasmine Sari, a political thriller by Philip Tucker. As a former counterterrorism officer serving in Asia, Somerset-based author Philip Tucker has used his experiences for the basis of his second novel, The Jasmine Sari, available now on Amazon. With over 30 years as a detective and counterterrorism consultant, Philip injects a police perspective into this terrorism thriller. Philip says this book is different and that it focuses on the mantra that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. The action is examined from both points of view. Seasoned London anti-terror cop Alex Cadman is sent to Bangladesh to share his experience with local police officers. He thinks his days of working on terrorist investigations are long gone, but he's about to get an unpleasant surprise. In the midst of protests about anti-Muslim cartoons, Bangladesh's capital becomes an increasingly dangerous place to be. So Cadman seeks refuge in the Foreigners Club. There he meets the enigmatic Jasmina, the policewoman who beguiles him with her charm and baffles him with her politics. But there's no escape for Cadman. Terrorism has followed him from London to South Asia, and he soon finds himself embroiled in an investigation that is a race against time. Can he identify the terrorists before tragedy strikes? The Jasmine Sari by Philip Tucker is available now on Amazon, free on Kindle if you sign up to Amazon Unlimited. All right, and now let's go to everyone's favourite section. It's Peak Woke. So, Toby, do you want to go first this week? 
Uh, yeah, I, I I saw rather an interesting story. Um, it was I saw the picture first. It was on um, Sky News um, uh, on the website, and it had a picture of a referee holding up a white card. Um, and it turns out, I think, that the Portuguese Football League, um, in addition to yellow and red cards, has introduced white cards for the first time this season. And players get a white card when they do something commendable. So, you know, if, if for instance, instead of taking a dive when you're tackled in the opponent's penalty area, you brush it off, get up and walk away and don't call for a penalty, um, then you get a white card um, from the referee for behaving well. Um, and uh, and the first time this card was shown to a player was in a women's football match. And curiously, I think it was when someone in the um, stadium collapsed, um, players from both teams, uh, instead of playing on, immediately rushed uh, to um, tell their own medical staff to go and help um, this spectator, which they duly did. And so the ref showed a white card to both teams. Um, but it's, a, it, it, it is, it's, sort of, it's, it's not quite, I don't suppose it will qualify as peak woke, but it's a little bit woke, isn't it? Trying to introduce a kind of wholesome, edifying note into football matches, um, uh, trying to encourage, you know, good, socially responsible behaviour um, uh, instead of bad behaviour. I mean, you know, hard to object to, I suppose, but it just doesn't seem somehow in keeping with the spirit of a football match. And um, not surprising, really, that the first time a white card was shown uh, was at a uh, women's match. And I suppose, um, you know, another reason why we can't really claim it as peak woke is that, you know, why is it a white card? Why isn't it a black card? Is it associating whiteness with virtue? I imagine that'll change next season. Great point. I didn't want to. I was going to say a misogynist would say, "Funny that this happens in the women's game." But luckily, you said it first, Toby. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, the women's game is already changing football. A couple of things on that. It's also quite interesting that it was they were helping out someone in the stand because people keep collapsing now, both on and off the pitch. Some say because of the vaccine. So, what could be more dystopian and post-COVID than someone getting a white card because you've got myocarditis in the, <laughs> from back injuries in the crowd? Well, as soon, as soon as someone collapses, they think, "Oh, that person's obviously been vaccinated. Let's give them a white card for being socially responsible." Do the right thing. You're right. Yeah, like a yeah, like a good white person. You're right. It's very. It's got, it's got many flaws, and it just reminds me of another story that came out this week. We covered on headliners. There was an explosion of homophobia in football. And you're thinking, really? It seems unlikely in 2023. And what it means is the goalposts have shifted, to use a pun, Toby, because they're actually just, the crowd was singing things like Chelsea Rent Boys, which I've been going to Man United since the 80s. They were singing it even then. Of course, I wasn't. But I'm saying these are not new chants. We've just decided now they're homophobic. I have to, I, I was ahead of the curve on this one because QPR, who think of themselves as, you know, Chelsea's bitter rivals. I'm sure Chelsea barely are barely aware of QPR's existence, but we think of them as our historic West London rivals. You know, as though it's a kind of you know, it's been it's been a kind of head to head rivalry dating back over a hundred years, and it's virtually neck and neck. In fact, you know, it's like me thinking that Tom Cruise is my rival or Constantine Kissin. Um, so we've been singing Chelsea are rent boys in the stands at QPR for as long as I've been supporting QPR. But when I when my when my sons um, uh, were tempted to sing along with this chant um, before it was demonised in the way it has been recently. I did say to them, they think that might just be a little bit homophobic. Um, yeah, they're basically saying, you know, 
we should we should spit on Chelsea because they're because they use male prostitutes because they're gay. Um, so you know you're always accusing me of being politically incorrect. Isn't this an example of you being a little bit? Uh, uh, politically incorrect, um, uh, and they sort of they, they took that on board, but they were a little bit skeptical. They didn't they, they didn't know what rent boys were, but um, uh, they, they've sort of they, 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 but now that it's been officially declared as an example of homophobia in football, um, I feel vindicated um, for having warned my sons about this about a year ago. You were pretty woke on that one, Toby. I mean, <laughs> pretty woke on that pretty one. Pretty yeah. woke. I don't think they even is, I don't think it is, even is homophobic. I think they're criticizing the sort of loose culture of, uh, of decadence and wealth in Chelsea that you can just yeah. hire a, a rent boy. That's what I think. I don't even think it's homophobic. <laughs> that's a very charitable reading. Yeah, yeah, that's my reading. And um, <laughs> and, uh, and um, when you sang it, though, how did the chant go? Because at Man United, it was just Chelsea rent boys, Chelsea rent boys, whoa, whoa. I know, I know it's Chelsea oh, rent boys. It's heavy. <laughs> oh, yeah, because you've got our rent boys. Ours just looks a bit more simple and punchy. Um, obviously, you shouldn't chant any of those. We, no. we completely deplore that, but yeah, and I, I'm 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 particularly careful when I go to QPR games because I imagine that you know someone who hates me, you know, in the in the in the seats immediately below me, if they hear me saying anything remotely uh, politically incorrect, they'll report me to the club, and because I'm a sort of you know <laughs> a celebrity fan, I'll immediately be singled out for a punishment beating. No exceptions, you know, just because he's a well-known journalist doesn't mean he doesn't have to obey the rules like everybody else. So, you know, I'm very careful. It must be tough um, when you I, offer I, your... I, uh, I, subs- when you get the... Two, Tom pays £250 to get the running commentary from you. Do you have to be really careful that how you how, the, how you do that commentary? Yeah. I, I was disappointed, Nick, that having said that, um, during our last podcast, I was expecting to be deluged with, you know, £250 <laughs> premium subscribers to my QPR Substack account. Not one. Not, Not one. one. I think that's more no. comment on QPR than you, Toby. Um, all right, so that's a decent contender, the white card. I'll offer one of mine, which is not the event itself, which the horrible killing of Tyree Nichols. My nomination is for the response to it. And CNN wrote, and this is a, a black man who was killed by black cops. So just bear that in mind. But it was still racist, is the peak woke part, because CNN said, opinion, the police who killed Tyree Nichols were black, but they still might have been driven by racism. Hmm. Fascinating, and it went on to say how they may have internalized anti-blackness, which is quite impressive. And there was a tweet from someone, anyone it's called Tim Wise, anyone who says the killing of Tyree Nichols can't be about racism because the cops are also black, really doesn't understand how white supremacy or anti-blackness works. Then Bree Newsom Bass said, diversifying the police force doesn't end racism because racism is inherent to the organization of the institution and its daily operation. Racism is what policing is. So the very act of policing, Toby, is itself racist. How about that? Yeah, well, I yeah, I mean, I, I can't say I was surprised to hear all these international gymnastics being performed by social justice warriors to condemn this as a racist assault, even though the assailants were all black. Um, but uh, interestingly, it hasn't quite worked. I mean, this attempt to spin it as yet more persecution of people of colour by the racist militia police force um, hasn't quite landed in the inner cities of America because it hasn't produced civil unrest on anything like the same scale as, um, you know, um, the uh, BLM brouhaha did. Um, So um, uh, it looks as though it's petered out now. Um, So I think it, it actually, you know, 
in spite of their best efforts to spin this as, you know, a racist hate crime, it hasn't really landed. I know what you mean, but it hasn't because it's so absurd. But there was a, a telling sentence in The Guardian, the five officers who beat Nichols, all of whom happened to also be black. I love that. It's like, happened to also be black. Would you write that sentence if it was George Floyd? You know, what happened when it was Daniel Shaver murdered and, and Tony Timper? Then it was, okay, it's a white person getting murdered by white people. We don't care. But a little bit, all of whom happen to also be black. You'd never see that sentence if it was a different way around. But anyway, I've made my point. That's true. Any other people, <laughs> you Toby? Yeah, so I've got, um, uh, I don't know if you saw this one, um, Nick, but uh, the London School of Economics uh, has uh, cancelled the terms Lent and Easter um, and replaced them with more anodyne, um, less contentious to, uh, phrases. So... Um, at the moment, I think uh, the university, which was founded in 1895, um, has been calling its autumn term Michaelmas term. Then it refers to the Christmas break, then Lent term, Easter break and summer term, followed by the summer holidays. And uh, the, the the terms Michaelmas, Christmas, Lent and Easter have now all been replaced. And they're, 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 the reason they've given is to make the term names more comprehensible to international students, um, which uh, seems pretty feeble because the LSE has had international students for decades, and I'm sure not a single one has complained that they they hadn't realised that Michaelmas term referred to the autumn term. Um, But I I imagine the real reason is because they're just trying to um, escape their Christian heritage as part of an effort to generally put as much distance as they can between themselves and Britain and its history, uh, just like every other British university. And I said that the mail called me for a quote and I said, why don't they just move to Cuba? Um, <laughs> anyway, not perhaps, perhaps not that funny. <laughs> no, it, it reminds me of um, another Pete Woke I thought about suggesting Toby, which is this uh, church in Rao over plan to show pride flag on altar in the Daily Mail. And this is St. Nicholas Church in Leicester, where they had a progress pride flag, which Church Reverend Canon Karen Rooms, who seems to be a person, claims that it was uh, made people feel welcome and safe. To me, I saw it more as a sort of capture. When you conquer something, you put your flag on it and say, this is ours now. And for some reason, it's been very, very important to the woke side to capture the church of England they can't just have their own thing in their in their side of the culture they've got to also move into the one place where you think this is a sacred space and take that over as well maybe have a Sam Smith video projected into the church next time <laughs> so that's my yeah or, or create, create create a water feature out of um, Sam Smith with the kind of urination scene from the video kind of somehow preserved at one end of the church um Horrific. so I think uh, the winner of Pete Woke um would undoubtedly have been um, the Associated Press style book, um, which tweeted some advice in which they said journalists should no longer use the word the before the poor or the French, uh, which which dehumanized these groups and suggested they were an amorphous mass rather than a group of individuals. So you're supposed to pe- talk about instead uh, people suffering from poverty instead of the poor. Um, and it was as though the, the Associated Press was essentially saying that um, the term the has now become unacceptable. They were trying to ban the word the, which seemed to be the kind of ne plus ultra of kind of word banning. Um, but um, it caused uproar. I mean, it 
even amongst the wokies, this was thought to be a step too far. And Associated Press deleted the tweet and did a reverse ferret. So luckily, Nick, you can still use the word the. Yeah, I mean, that would be amazing to cancel the word the. Can I just read the actual sentence I had, which is, we recommend avoiding general and often dehumanizing the labels, such as the poor, the mentally ill, the French. <laughs> I thought it got cancelled by the French for being so anti-French. I mean, that was, that was the main problem, wasn't it? But maybe it was the fact that the... Oh, maybe. I don't know. There's two that I think would win, Toby, but I've got such woke fatigue. I can't even be bothered researching them properly. I've just got woke fatigue. One of them is that a theatre tried to ban white critics of the play. And it was another theatre that apparently tried to ban white people going. But I'm so like befuddled by these similar stories and the sheer wokeness. I just can't even... I keep, I keep trying to look them up and I just I can't do it, Toby. I've just, been, I've just got woke fatigue. So yeah. I haven't even been able were, to. I, I, I think I did glance at these stories um, because I think we included them in the uh, daily roundup in the Daily Skeptic. Um, and um, I think, interestingly, both theatres are in Canada. So one theatre has put on a play about these two um, women of colour. Um, uh, I think it's historical, but only goes back to the 90s. I don't quite know what they got up to. But anyway, they've said they want to reserve one performance for people of colour. Um, quite why I didn't get into. Um, uh, and then the other is a theatre which is also putting on um, a black play. Um, and um, and it's it, it says it only wants uh, black theatre critics, or at least non-white theatre critics, to review the play because apparently, if you're white, you just can't understand it. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, pr- pretty egregious examples of peak work. But like you, I couldn't really be bothered to master the detail in order to nominate either of them this week. <laughs> and there's one more I've got, which I do have with me. Last one: Jane Austen novel given gender stereotyping trigger warning. I think it's Northanger Abbey has been given a warning, and one of the things is that it contains toxic relationships and friendships. I mean, try working in media or comedy, but that's, that's all there is. <laughs> I don't know why that warrants a trigger warning. So a new level of insanity when Jane Austen gets a trigger warning. Yeah, and, and also that's based on a kind of fairly tin-eared reading of Northanger exactly. Abbey, which is a pastiche of the gothic novel. Um, yes. So the relationships are not supposed to be particularly healthy. I know, anyway. but context is gone now, Toby. <laughs> Jimmy Carr is serious yes. when he tells a joke. Jeremy Clarkson is serious. All context is gone. So I think I get weak poke because I couldn't be bothered learning th- those stories. But I don't know who gets beat well because there's so many good ones there this week. I think probably. Um, uh, well, can you shoehorn in? Um, uh, I, I think I think probably the um, the LGBTQ plus icon in the church. I'm going to give you. That. I'm going to give it to you. Okay. This week. I thought it might have been the white card, but okay. That's Pete Woke. Shall I just read a few reviews, Tom? Because we've had some really good ones. And uh, there's yeah. a, someone said a great listen. I look forward to my regular dose of The Weekly Skeptic. It provides a refreshing anti-woke view of what's been going on around the world. Nick's recent pizza impressions are fast becoming my favorite segment. Perhaps you could consider including these as a regular section alongside the other highlight of Peak Woke. Toby, there is a little overlap with some of your London calling content, but it's always so good. It's a pleasure to hear it on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. Surely means Monday and Tuesday, but great balance of views and a brilliant dynamic between Toby and Nick. Keep up the great work, guys. Ian, so there you go. And there are a lot more along. I mean, I'll read one more. Great podcast, easy listening, but serious points made in an engaging way, respectful and don't talk over each other. That's true. Toby did 10 uninterrupted minutes at the start of this week's episode. (laughs) Great takeoff of JP, Nick. That gave me a much needed chuckle. I know you have had a tough time, Toby, but you're having an impact with vital work with FSU. Please keep it up. We need your sanity. That's nice, isn't it? And there's some more like that. But they're all about my Jordan Peterson impressions. I'll spare you, Toby. There's about three or four just about that. So... um, (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> maybe we will bring that into a regular section, but uh, so far I haven't yeah, thought just, of a way to yeah. it without annoying Toby um, too much. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm happy for you to get well-deserved praise for your outstanding impression of Jordan Peterson. Um, you did a great impression earlier when, when we were sort of um, riffing um, before this, spitballing uh, before this episode, um, uh, kibitzing. You did a great impression of um, Tolkien. Uh, yeah, can we hear a bit of that? Well, well I was saying the thing with Tolkien, he's always speaking with the pipers, but because it's very hard to say what he's saying. And then he, he says things like mice instead of myth, and who who would really say mice? Because the hobbits are very typical. Of and, it, and it's that's how he speaks, but <laughs> no one listens to Tolkien, so no one will get that. I know it's I can't, it's like uh, it shows that you you must be a dedicated comedian if you spend hours, you know, in front of the mirror perfecting this Tolkien impression. <laughs> Even though maybe only one person in one audience in the whole of the United Kingdom would actually get it. I'm building a house that, you know, in my, in my sort of reality show thing that has Jordan Peterson, which is fine. But then for some reason has Tolkien in there. And he's like, well, of course, if you look at the mind, this is very, very simple construction. And then Peterson's going, I, I like the archetypes because that's all he ever says <laughs> in my impression. <laughs> and then weirdly, Werner Herzog's there going, yes. I don't, I don't know why Werner Herzog will be there, so I can't shoehorn him in. And he says, like, yeah. fantasy is a waste of time. It's, I, I don't know what he's saying. Like, I, reality is far more powerful. I, I can't do it. I can do Herzog when I really try, but it's hard to move between them and transition. And do, you, do, you think, do you think Jacob Rees-Mogg should be a guest in that? Mr. Peterson, if, 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 if you don't find it too presumptuous, might I just suggest that when you're next tweeting about Justin Trudeau, you use slightly less intemperate language? Yeah, well, he's, he's a bloody nightmare. I don't see why I should hold <laughs> off. It's an absolute tragedy for Canada. It's a bloody disaster. Yeah, I think... Um, and Peterson retweeted me, do you know that, on my GB? I know he always retweets you, but he also yeah, retweeted me. Yeah, very good. Badge he said it was, he, he, Maybe I think he must have heard your impression. That's it. He said, just wanted to get in touch to say great work. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I need to work on my Herzog, but um, why would Werner Herzog be in a house? I'm not sure with Jordan Peterson, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Tolkien, <laughs> and um, I can do a few other people. We don't. Yeah, if you can have dead people, that, that's opening a gateway, isn't it? Yeah, there'll be a lot of segments on this podcast anyway for people to wade through. All right, we've done a fairly long episode. People like the long episodes, don't they? So I think we've covered everything. Um, do you want to just add some sort of plug at the end, Toby? Yeah, please do um, sign the Jeremy Clarkson petition. If you go to the homepage of the Free Speech Union, freespeechunion.org, you'll find a link to our Clarkson petition. I think we're up to... Uh, almost 65,000 signatures now. We want to get to 75,000. Please join the Free Speech Union, donate to the Daily Skeptic, sign up for the overnight Daily Skeptic email newsletter. I think that's about it from me. I'm not going to plug my QPR Substack again. It's just pointless. (laughs) (laughs) Someone will come, Toby. Someone will come along at one point. It might be me, but just paying you 250 quid, I could have probably got it for free. But um, yes, and I'm on nickdixon.substack.com. But until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.